0: showtime sports presents showtime boxing with eric raskin and kieran mulvaney
1: hello and welcome to showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney with my co-host eric raskin i am kira mulvaney and this is the fourth and final of our special podcasts looking at the showtime sports docu-series the kings and this week the episode opens with the explosion of the space shuttle challenger disaster that marked the beginning of an end of an era of space travel as the end of the Four Kings era approaches in the form of the inevitable clash that's been built up since Episode 1, the super fight between Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard. And following his win over Thomas Hearns, we see Hagler finally getting the acclaim he always yearned for. But promoter Bob Aram reveals that following the Hearns win, Hagler wanted to retire, but Aram persuaded him to fight John the Beast Mugabe, And he showed enough mileage in that win, did Hagler, for Leonard to decide that the time was right to come back out of retirement and give Marvellous One what he'd wanted for years. And we all know what happened next. Leonard famously sticks and moves his way to a split decision win that still divides opinion 34 years later. And a disgusted Hagler retires to Italy never to fight again. Uh, The others, however, continue to box. Hearns rebounds from the Hagler loss to add alphabet belts at light heavyweight and middleweight, while Detroit reeling from an epidemic of crack cocaine and the Reagan administration's simplistic and racist anti-drug policies involving police raids and public entreaties that just say no, holds a Thomas Hearns Day parade. Hearns suffers an upset loss to Iran Barkley and an even bigger loss when his young brother murders his girlfriend just days before Tommy faces Leonard In a long overdue rematch. Uh, In an entertaining fight made all the more entertaining. By their diminished ability to avoid punishment. Hearns drops Leonard twice. But has to settle for a draw. That is the eighth fight. Between the four kings. And the ninth and last is a rematch of the first. Between a past his prime Leonard. And an even more geriatric Duran. The story has come full circle. Episode four. Like episode one. Features Leonard Duran. U.S. policy toward Panama with even Duran's house being searched by invading U.S. forces searching for General Noriega, and poverty in Detroit. By the time 47-year-old Duran loses his last pro fight to William Joppy, the Mike Tyson era has been and gone. But the Four Kings era continues to endure. Shortly, we'll be talking with Showtime's Hall of Fame boxing analyst, Al Bernstein. But first, Eric You've been sitting there very quietly filing your nails while I've jibber-jabbered, so uh, why don't you kick off our next segment, our favorite moments from episode four?
2: Gladly. A- anything to put a stop to the jibber-jabbering. <laughs> um, so one of the things that jumped out at me in this episode, and it's present in every episode, but it really struck me in this one, was a realization that of just how often boxing was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in the 80s. It wasn't just after a super fight like Hagler Hearns or Leonard Hagler. Here we see that Hagler Mugabe landed on the cover. Uh, By the time I started working at the ring in 1997, SI was barely acknowledging boxing, giving it a page or two now and then, and mostly using that space to shit on the sport. Uh, (laughs) The cover? Forget about it. Uh, I actually found an article online that tallied this up. Between 1980 and 1997, there were 45 SI boxing covers in 18 years, two and a half per year. Between 1998 and 2010, one. One time before the Mayweather-Delahoya fight, they got the cover. Uh, While golf, uh, barely even a sport, uh, was getting five or six covers a year. Sorry, (laughs) golf lovers. Um, But here were the Four Kings getting tons of covers. We're seeing those covers throughout the doc. And it brings up the question for me. Did boxing fall off, causing the mainstream sports media to pay less attention Mm -hmm. to it? Or did the mainstream media decide to cover boxing less and its popularity and or perceived popularity declined as a result? It's a chicken or the egg thing. Specifically here, did the Four Kings make boxing thrive in the 80s? Mm. Or was boxing thriving in the 80s and the Four Kings benefited from that? Mm. Uh, It's probably a bit of both, though I think more the former than the latter. But, you know, like if you put the Pacquiao-Marquez-Barrera-Morales rivalry in the 80s and the Four Kings in the 2000s, are they appreciated differently? I don't know. Mm. Just some food for thought. Uh, Anyway, all those SI covers we see, like the political and economic events of the time, provide context about the era the Four Kings fought
1: in. Yeah, and even that one latter sports illustrated cover was pretty negative right it was is this the fight to save boxing as right <laughs> yeah Was what it's ever made with a Deloya. so yeah no I, i'm always very interested in this whole chicken and egg thing uh, when it comes to boxing uh, you know like I, I do suspect strongly that there are two you know principal reasons why boxing has remained or become a new a somewhat significant sport in the uk for example and i think one is that the massive investment in the amateur program um, London 2012 was the British boxing and what Los Angeles 1984 was to sport and was right. to the sport in the US. Right. Yeah. And the other or at least another is that the country still has several national newspapers with sports writers who specialize in boxing. Uh, guys like our pal Gareth A. Davis at The Telegraph, mm-hmm. Jeff Powell at The Mail and, and so on. You know, and I think You know, even 20 years ago, we had newspaper guys focusing on on boxing guys like, you know, Michael Katz, Ron Borges, George Willis, Tim Smith, Michael Hersley, and they were ringside regulars. And it's just a very different scene now. You know, I think one of the things when you talk about, you know, did the Four Kings help elevate boxing in the 80s or were they beneficiaries? I do think it's a bit of both. And much as the other three will hate to admit it. You raising the question is, would they have been that big without Ray Leonard? Right, right. You needed him not only with the, the smile and the way he looked and the way he talked, but his Olympic success and the fact that, as we talked about, I think all the way back with episode one, his amateur bouts, let alone the Olympics, were being televised on network TV and it had that kind of exposure. And without that, if it had been, I don't know, Duran, uh, Hearns, Hagler, and i don't know joe palooka would they <laughs> would they Would it have been would they have even been that big i don't know um it, it, it's it's a really really interesting thing to think about
2: yeah even even if it had the fourth fighter had been an outstanding fighter like Wilfred benitez right, instead even you replace leonard with benitez, leonard with benitez yeah. and yeah it's yeah you're it's probably we're probably not calling them the four kings it's probably not considered a golden age just a very good uh very good age of quality fights between some excellent fighters
1: yeah agree um One of the things that I made a note of from this episode, it's not boxing related at all, but for me it was just absolutely one of the most jaw-dropping moments, was the brief clip of Ronald Reagan attempting to explain away the fact that he had lied about Iran-Contra. And he said, quote, I told you this country did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and evidence do not. <laughs> what the actual hell is what? What kind of doublespeak is that? I mean, no wonder we're now in a place where facts just don't seem to matter, because who needs facts and evidence when you have heart and best intentions? Uh, and yet you get his heart and best. He knows he's lying. And, he's, you know, though, you know that millions of people just ate that up well gosh it turns out he likes but in his heart he didn't ah sorry (laughs) i still like the guy just give him a pass unbelievable to me
2: yeah no that that was kind of stunning to watch and obviously i was alive then i sort of remember the iran contra thing as just like those words iran contra i don't know if i really knew what it meant so and and i certainly hadn't uh done a deep dive uh, on it at all and didn't fully understand it so this this was kind of shocking to see Americans were not as tribal then. Uh, mm-hmm. I would think you know, even many hardcore Republicans probably at the time were willing to acknowledge that Reagan screwed up and were willing to criticize their president. Uh, but still, you know, not not to the point of changing the narrative that he was a great and popular president. Which uh, <laughs> watching this documentary, you you wouldn't be so <laughs> sure. Um, I think I understand the BS that Reagan was trying to spin there, kind of trying to convince everyone it was sort of an I didn't know we did a bad thing. I trusted Mm. people and they did the bad thing and I didn't understand what we were doing. I I think Mm -hmm. he was passing the buck in in that way. Uh, It was almost a hint of the old, I'm I'm not apologizing for what I said, but if you were offended, I apologize for (laughs) you feeling that way. (laughs) One of those kind of deals. Um, Big Reagan fans can't be loving the political aspects of the Kings, Um, but I think it's mostly been a fair portrayal. Maybe not all of it. Um, The talking head who scoffs at him being the family values president mm-hmm. when he had gotten divorced and remarried. I don't know. Getting divorced doesn't necessarily make you a bad family man. There, there are little stretches like that where uh, may, maybe they're, uh, it's not all entirely fair. Um, but anyway, it's interesting that this episode we saw both Hagler and Hearns with Reagan after yes. we had seen Leonard with him in previous episodes. Could you imagine... Terrence Crawford, Errol Spence, and Keith Thurman each being invited (laughs) to the White House. It kind of goes back to the previous topic that I introduced. Boxing was just a lot more mainstream in the
1: 80s. Yep, indeed.
2: All right. My next topic, I got a chuckle out of the way Matt Whitecross and his editors handled the third Leonard Duran fight. Um, and by the way, I know you're listening, Matt, number one fan of the Raskin and Mulvaney Kings <laughs> mini pods. So, uh, Matt, what you did here was somewhat cruel. We hear Tom <laughs> Hauser say Leonard Duran 3 was a terrible fight. Nobody should have to see it. And the picture fades to black. And for a second, you think, OK, they're not going to show any footage from the fight. But then they come right back and do show you <laughs> clips of this horrendous fight. I got a kick out of it. It was a funny little feint. Um, but in the end, still far less attention was paid in the docu series to this fight than to any of the other eight fights between mm. the Kings. So it's all good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't have much to say about that. <laughs> other than that, I'm glad that very little they did show made no attempt to disguise exactly what kind of a fight it was. Right. Um, I did like the suggestion. It wasn't necessarily with with this fight in particular, but sort of in the aftermath of Leonard Hagler, that much as he felt, you know, he got the short end of the stick against Leonard, much as he was bitter about so much of the way the world of boxing treated him, by walking away and staying away, by not putting himself through further punishment, and most of all by not degrading himself with this kind of embarrassing performance. In the end, Marvin Hagler kind of won. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I, and I rather like that sort of suggestion. I like the fact that Hagler was the one who was too dignified to go through any of these kind of shenanigans. Yep. Talking of Leonard Hagler, uh, a couple of observations from that. First of all, loved seeing the little clip of Mark Ratner, future head of the Nevada State Athletic uh, Commission and future UFC exec as an inspector in the corner of Ray Leonard uh, during that fight. Um, and the second thing, the one that really leapt out at me, Leonard's pleading to Hagler at the end, like he's, you know, he's constantly just trying to get him to pay attention. Marvin, 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 Marvin. Are we still friends? Mm. It's weird, I thought. I've never heard one fighter say that to another fighter in the ring before, you know, after a fight. And uh, it it, it, it had me wondering a little bit. I don't know whether I'm reading too much into it, but, you know, did it mean... Does just show that this fight just meant so much less to Leonard than it did to Hagler, that at the end of the day, he wanted to, just wanted to be Marvin's buddy? Did Ray really not understand the depth of Marvin's bitterness toward him and toward boxing? And I was also curious, was, was Marvin really Ray's friend at that point? I mean, after all the stunts he pulled, especially that, that whole business in Baltimore that we talked about, I don't know. I just found it very curious. I hadn't seen it before, and I was very curious about it. Yeah, well, as
2: uh, David Dinkins Jr. told us, Ray is a complicated guy. Um, I think he wants to be loved, including Mm -hmm. by Marvin Hagler, despite behaving in a way sometimes that might not warrant being loved. Um, Mm -hmm. I should say, I've gotten to know Ray a little bit. I I worked a few NBC broadcasts with him, in addition to interviewing him a handful of times over the years. And I've never seen his unlikable side at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my personal experience, I've found him to have two modes, either... Friendly and outgoing and charming or just kind of quiet that I haven't seen a jerk mode at all. Um, I do have a note on that post-fight conversation between Ray and Marvin. Um, This wasn't part of what they showed us. Maybe there isn't actually footage of this that captures this audio. But there was an exchange that the two of them debated the meaning of in my oral history. Marvin says that Ray told him after the fight, before the decision was read, you're still the champion. You won. That's what Marvin claims that Ray told him he won the fight. And Ray says, no, he told him, no matter what, you're still a champion to me. Hmm. Um, I, I find that fascinating. And I, I believe Ray's side in this one. I, I, I kind of do. Yeah, that Marvin like just kind of
1: yeah. misinterpreted
2: what he said, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so for my final observation, it's a downer, but wow, seeing Muhammad Ali at Tommy Hearns's final fight in an episode that was largely about decline and decay and the sad struggle to hold on. That was a depressing reminder of boxing's toll on top of a depressing reminder of boxing's toll. The whole back half of the final episode had an air of sadness and things spinning out of control in a bad way. It's not quite the Goodfellas ending, but it it had a hint of that, that, that lesson that the glory days don't last And uh, a couple of quick additional Thomas Hearns notes. Um, It was interesting how the Barkley-Hearns fight plays as sad here in this context, whereas in other contexts, if I ran Barkley as the main character, it's a thrilling, inspiring underdog triumph. Um, And then I have to mention Tommy's masturbating monkey. Uh, (laughs) Jackie Callan described him in the episode as jerking off all day long. Uh, The monkey, not Tommy. Uh, to be clear. Um it's a very distant number two to Duran's threesome in terms of sexual side plots, but still quite funny.
1: Yes. Yes. Thomas Hearn's monkey was always spanking the monkey, which oh, was kind of yes. interesting. Little, there you go. very meta in <laughs> mas- masturbatory kind of way. Um But yeah, you know, you're right. That that whole it's interesting, the whole part of the show in many ways, and, and it is what boxing is all about, of course, there's that sense of struggle um, and, you know, seeking success and redemption with these occasional peaks of greatness and joy. And it's such a shame. It would be wonderful if the story could have ended with Leonard Hagler or something like that, that there could have been a clean break right. where at the end of it we say... look at those guys you know they they had this fantastic sequence of fights and and we only have the great memories and it's you know it's such a shame that even these guys had for all that they've done for all the heights they climbed the four kings or at least three of them shuffled on into mediocrity like just any other normal mortal professional boxer Mm. um you would have liked there to be an all-round happy ending but there aren't very many happy endings (laughs) in boxing well Tommy Hearns monkey had several a day <laughs> apparently but apart from that it's right. it's interesting that at the end for all the mountains they climbed they were just like just about every other professional boxer and how it ended
2: yeah
1: um my final one is i really enjoyed seeing hagler at the beginning of the episode clearly enjoying himself and, and smiling and enjoying his acclaim but it was funny you know watching him acting lighthearted on SNL and on sitcoms and sitting next to Johnny Carson. As much as he was clearly enjoying himself, you can also see why maybe he didn't catch on with the general public in quite the same way as Leonard did. He didn't have quite that same unforced charisma that Ray does. It looked like it was a little bit of an effort. Um, But then you see later on in the show, he's asked before his fight with Ray whether he's worried about Leonard's eye, and he replies, If he's foolish enough to step in the ring with me, I'm foolish enough to rip his eye out. And I thought, ah, there he is. (laughs) He just seemed much more at ease on camera being that guy. And I know that he was, by all accounts, the loveliest person outside of the ring. But I couldn't help feeling that maybe if he had embraced that mean persona against Leonard rather than trying to do whatever it was he was trying to do in the ring there, we might not still be debating that decision all these years later.
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great observation, especially the part about uh, him on the talk show circuit and all that. He he was not a natural uh, doing that. And, you know, with him, the commercials that worked best were the anything less would be uncivilized deodorant ads, mm, because mm. just like Charles Barkley doing those same ads, it was ironic. The, this guy that's... is clearly not proper and civilized in that sense so you're playing off that um and someone pointed out earlier in the kings that the nickname marvelous didn't really fit him yes um you know it sounded good marvelous marvin makes sense but mean marvin Hagler would have fit his fighting persona better um the only thing i'll add about how he fought leonard is let's not forget to give Ray credit for convincing sure. him to fight the wrong fight. Uh, it was uh I would say it wasn't a totally unforced error by Hagler. There was a uh an element of sort of it being a provoked error by a master mm. boxing psychologist. Yeah. And as long as we're we're talking about Hagler, I just want to touch on the very end of the series um First of all, good use of dramatic violins uh, during the final minutes. It reminded me of the score on The Leftovers. I'm sorry to reference a non-Showtime property. <laughs> but um, but then the, the card at the end, Marvelous yeah. Marvin Hagler, 1954 to 2021. Man, how do you not get choked up yep. seeing that? Um, it stings. Uh, it does. R- really doesn't seem fair that he's the only one of the kings who retired at the right time, didn't take any sad beatings. And he died first, although maybe he also avoids the worst part of physical decline. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not to go down that side path. It's kind of off topic. But Hagler didn't suffer, we presume. So so that's good. Um, But anyway, that that card at the end, just a, a devastating capper to the series.
1: Yeah, it absolutely was. I mean, the timing for this show could have simultaneously not been better or worse, right. really, yep. in many respects. Yeah. All right. Uh, with that, let's turn to this week's guest. He is a regular on the podcast and, of course, on Showtime Boxing Broadcast. He also hosts a podcast of his very own, Al Bernstein Unplugged, the name of which should give his identity away. He is, of course, Showtime's Hall of Fame boxing analyst, the one and only Al Bernstein. Al, welcome.
0: Good to be with you guys.
2: Um, So you make a comment fairly early in episode four of The Kings that Marvin Hagler was never the darling of the boxing intelligentsia. Um, I'm curious why you felt that was the case and and whether you feel that has changed significantly over subsequent years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were a few reasons for that. Um, You know, it took him forever to get a world title shot. He was robbed the first time he got his world title shot in many subsequent fights. After that, it almost, I'm going to, this is going to sound conspiratorial and I don't mean it conspiratorial because it wasn't a conspiracy. It was was conspiracy. It was just a perfect storm of events. He consistently was undervalued by judges in almost Mm -hmm. every fight, even in the fights he won and in general, didn't get the kind of attention that you would have expected him to get, um, and s- most of that's based on fact. Some of it is perception, but most of it's based just on the way things played out.
2: And and do you feel like like that has evolved at all, like post career the way yes. he's viewed now? Okay, yeah, he's
0: yes. I, I I think I think people even from that era, and of course newer people have kind of rethought everything and realized that wait a second you know it didn't make sense that you know the fight with John Mugabe was that close and the fight with Roberto Ram was that close and how I just looked at the Antifermo fight and how could that be a draw and and also you know why did it seem like they you know he wasn't put forth as a superstar earlier. I think people are relived, revisiting that and kind of doing a, a, a rethinking. Mm.
1: Even now, after repeated viewings, it's a little odd to see Hagler so passive, for want of a better phrase, and against Leonard, especially in the early going, you know, the way he comes out orthodox, he's trying to outbox the boxer and so on. After 34 years or whatever of thinking about it, what do you think was going on in his, Marvin's head that night? And do you agree with Teddy Atlas's assessment that he just overthought the whole thing? Or as Eric just posited to me, do you think that Ray Leonard deserves more credit for making him do that? And, and if he'd fought more like the Marvin Hagler everyone was expecting, do you suspect he would have won more, com- won comfortably or at least put himself in a stronger position to do that?
0: Yeah, that's probably true. Um, you know, I the idea that he fought those first two rounds as a righty is just incomprehensible. Uh, I I was shocked at that, as were most people. Uh, The fact that he chose to be a boxer, especially at the beginning of that um, fight, I think was a little bit surprising. And remember, they had given up certain things, Uh, the glove size, the ring size. Marvin Hagler made out like a bandit financially on that fight. It was fascinating. They they outnegotiated Ray Leonard in terms of money, but not in terms of the outcome of the fight, which is fascinating. You'd think it would be the other way around, but it wasn't. And so, all of those things kind of made this into the fight that it ended up being. Uh, I think Marvin Hag. My own personal feeling is that Marvin thought it would be even more delicious mm-hmm. to outbox the boxer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, at some point, of course, realized, hmm, okay, this guy is performing at a certain level where I need to go in there and and make things happen, which of course, is he switched to lefty and he did get more aggressive and, uh, and did ultimately, you know, mix it up more. But I a hundred percent think what you said is true. If he had come right out in round one with more of a purpose, he would have won the fight. Obviously, nothing was going to change Jojo Guerra's uh, scorecard. Right, but the other scorecard that was close would have been changed, uh, mm. and he would have. He would have, as it was. I personally thought he eked out a decision over Leonard. That you know, but again, it was a close fight that could have gone either way. Right.
2: And th- that leads perfectly into what I wanted to ask you because I I know well, that that's
0: what I'm here for <laughs> for you guys. That's the yes. only reason I'm here.
2: Yes, yeah. You know, the the segways transitions we're we're barely needed. We could have right. just hit record to let you talk. That's but right. um, the- I-, I wanted to talk about the way you scored the fight because I-, I I knew that you did favor Hagler in your scoring. Now this is a fight that some people say every time I watch it I score it a little different.
0: Yeah, th- I-, I could see that.
2: Okay. Have you ever watched it and found yourself changing around to end up with a draw or anything like that? Or every time you've watched it, Hagler ekes it out?
0: You know, when I watch it again, I, for the most part, I feel like Hagler won by, uh, 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 you know, a, a very narrow margin. I could see a draw in this fight easily. And I guess there's a chance that, that you know, that Leonard won it by, uh, a, you know, by one round or whatever. Um, I don't alter it that dramatically, but I could see it as a fight where people would look at it again and say, "Okay, well, you know, I'm seeing something different, and I'm not." Uh... Here, here's my big argument in this fight, mm-hmm. and it goes back to the CompuBox numbers, which I, I know are not used to score a fight. I, I, you know, I've been using them for many years. They're used for trends and everything. Hagler won the battle of the jabs. Now if you are the boxer in this fight and you do not win the battle of the jabs, my, my contention is you might not have won the decision. And uh, Leonard was supposed to be the boxer and he, he didn't win the battle of jabs. Now that's not conclusive, but I think it's one of the things I point to. It was a very close fight, you know, and Leonard performed above expectations. Nobody thought he was going to, I mean, I remember back then thinking that, We were all concerned about Ray Leonard's uh, health in this fight. You know, he hadn't performed well, as the documentary points out. It was not as if he was coming into this fight with a ton of momentum or anything. So, you know, nobody expected him to do that well.
2: Right. Um, And and I recall you telling me a story when I interviewed you 10 years ago for my oral history of this fight that you saw Lou Filippo, the judge who scored for Hagler at the airport the next day. Do Do you mind quickly retelling that story? Yeah, he...
0: I bumped in him at the airport and um, now mind you, I was probably a little hazy because back in those days, usually I rolled into the airport without any sleep from oh. the night before <laughs> it was after all the eighties. So, you <laughs> optional, and God knows what, you know, what else I might've ingested during the course of that <laughs> evening, but <clears throat> nonetheless, right. I do remember this. Uh, I, he was almost kind of sheepish. And he said, "What uh what did you think, you know, like that?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Look, I thought you were correct." He said, "Oh, thank you." He said I he was very worried that somehow, you know, he you know, he felt the responsibility of it and mm-hmm. uh um he, you know, he was very timid about his score, but he did believe in his score.
2: Mm-hmm. I wonder if JoJo Gara felt sheepish at all. Yes.
0: <laughs> I'm going to guess that he was not uh, self-aware enough to... Uh, I don't know Jojo Guerra. That's why I shouldn't yeah. say that, but, uh, yeah, he should have been a little sheepish <laughs> about his score. Just should a have been. smidge. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so Eric and I have both mentioned several times while well, you know talking about the show how much watching the kings makes us miss haggler and and we just talked about the poignancy of seeing the in memoriam card at the very end of episode four you hosted his memorial recently and i'm wondering do you have any thoughts or insights from that like who was there what was the crowd like and, and were there any great memories that were shared
0: yeah you know that was an event that was kind of it was a very homespun event that they put together for brockton so there was a crowd there it wasn't and there were some, you know. Tommy Hearns surprised people by coming. Uh, Stephen A. Smith was there. Uh, they somebody just called him and invited him, and God bless him, he came there. I know boxing fans have mixed emotions about Stephen A. Smith. So do I when he talks about boxing on the rare occasions. Uh, but but he God bless him for coming, and he was very, uh, you know, uh, he was great there, and uh, you know. So there were people on hand that were of import, um, and. It was a. It, it was done, I think, primarily for uh, you know there was no funeral, and I think for it was done for Marvin Hagler's mom more than anything else, <laughs> and uh, and it was a, a you know an emotional day uh, because we were all thinking about him, and it's I find it Marvin Hagler is one of those people, and we I'm sure we all have them in our lives, both personal people and even people of uh, of public note who we think are indestructible Mm. marvin Hagler is one of those people and i had always you know i'd seen him maybe a year and a half before he was in perfect health he looked great so it's i'm having i still have a hard time wrapping my head around uh the idea that marvin Hagler is not with us anymore
2: yeah Mm. yeah um, going back one episode, we're, we're mostly talking about episode yep. four in this podcast, but I do want to backtrack to episode three, where you were one of the commentators on the big fight, Hagler-Hearns. You've called a lot of fights since. Where does that fight, and especially round one, stand in the pantheon of great fights you, you've called and witnessed from ringside?
0: Well, it's certainly one of the one or two most special moments uh, for me because of of a couple of things. One, the moment, you know, it was extraordinary, you know, and number two, what they achieved in such a small time. I mean, the fight was only two and a half rounds. So, right. uh, you know, when you think of it, it wasn't like it lasted forever, but especially in that first round, of course, it was so remarkable that that whole evening we nobody could talk about anything else nobody could (laughs) think about anything else it was staggering and um and I remember I did something at that uh fight you know I when they were coming in that fight was intriguing because when I was there at that outdoor stadium at Caesars Palace which was so great at first I thought I'm not feeling the electricity as much as I thought I might. I mean, I was wildly excited. I mean, it wasn't, you know, a much anticipated fight. Uh, Was I, you know, I was so excited to be there. I mean, you know, it was, I was five years into my broadcasting career. And I had this amazing assignment working with Al Michaels and Kurt Gowdy. So, you know, it was daunting, but I remember feeling, maybe it doesn't feel. And I remember saying to Bruce Trampler, I said, Bruce, does this crowd feel like it's on pins and needles as much as they should be? And he said, you know, in a way, no, everything changed when they started the walkouts. Mm -hmm. And I took my headphones off when the walkout was happening and I heard to really hear it. And it's funny. I said to myself, Oh my God, how lucky am I to be here? And the interesting thing is I now do that in almost every fight I announce. Mm -hmm. But during that period, I take my headphones off for just a minute or two, look around, to get the sense of of what it's like. On mm-hmm. that night, it was absolutely magical. Mm-hmm.
2: All right, mm-hmm. we we won't tell uh, Morrow that you take the headphones off uh, to avoid hearing him for a few seconds. That you, that you just need I just a want a
0: moment of escapism from him. That's mm-hmm. all. <laughs> I- I just um, had coffee with Morrow, yeah, my yeah. good friend. Yes, we, we love Morrow.
1: Yeah, he's one of the best. Um, we've been, as we've talked about the series, marveling at the archival footage that they yeah. use, the quotes, the interviews that they found and put together. Obviously, you knew Hagler, you know the other three, you're intimately familiar with with the general arc of the story, but I'm curious about whether, even for you, when you sat down and watched it, was there anything while watching the show that you thought, I didn't know that. Or that's wow, that's great!
0: That's a terrific question. And and there were clips I'd never heard. Uh, like you said, they found these clips, and it, and there were things that I don't remember experiencing or didn't hear those clips or didn't hear that they said that or 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 learned about that. Uh, and it speaks to the fact that you know there are topics in our life. That have been revisited and revisited and revisited. That we think, okay, we've we've exhausted everything. I do not think the Four Kings is one of those things. And I think this, to be perfectly candid, I think this series really demonstrates that uh, that there's there's more things to think about and unearth and 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 little details that uh, that are fun to relive. And of course, for different people that didn't experience it too, to find out about, but yes, there were many, there were things in this show that I was thinking, Oh my God, I, you know, that's pretty amazing. Well, uh, uh, you know, that even some of the, and a lot of it, some of it actually has to do with even this last episode where the idea of what Ray Leonard was thinking about and how he was plotting uh, his, his, his conquest of, of, of Hagler. There were some things there that I was, you know, Uh, not aware of and uh, you know there's just this is a rich vein of boxing history that we're still mining Mm.
1: one of the things that I especially enjoyed was Roberto's commentary Uh, I had no idea I mean i would met him a couple times interviewed him a couple times and he was very nice but I had no idea what a great raconteur he is what a happy guy he seems to be Uh, I wonder if you were aware of that and that's that's your experience with Roberto Duran
0: Yeah, you know, he yeah, he was. The interesting thing is people don't think of him that way because they see the snarling uh, Panamanian with, you know, and maybe and he's, you know, doesn't speak English uh, in public, though he does understand it uh, a lot better than than people would think. Uh, They don't see that kind of bon vivant, if Mm -hmm. you will. Uh, and there's a phrase that probably has not been used on your show.
2: Uh, <laughs> you are the first. <laughs> all right.
0: I want to, I want get credit for that now <laughs> because, you know, uh, they don't see that side of him and it existed. You know, there were, there was a club here in Las Vegas called botanies. It was a, it was a nightclub and uh, you know, back then there weren't clubs in the casinos like there is now nightclubs. So this place was off the strip and, and, Everybody from the boxing world went there. And you could go there on a big weekend. Let's say Tommy Hearns was fighting against somebody else and there's something else going on. You went there and you might find Marvin Hagler in this part of the nightclub with his group of people, Ray Leonard over there, Roberto Duran over there. and uh, uh, Or if two of them were fighting each other, they wouldn't be there, but mm. two of their other counterparts would be and you would see this mingling, uh, intermingling of of all these people with uh, with, you know, and Roberto Duran was there with his crew and uh, they were they were having a good time.
2: <laughs> you you never saw him, though, mid threesome, as, as discussed on the That's show, it. that that never happened at the club in front of you, I hope.
0: Not in front of me, no. I, <laughs> okay. did not, I can't say I experienced that, nor was I part of that
2: experience. <laughs> Just to be clear, on the record. Just record. For the
0: record, I will right. say that, you know, there are a lot of things I cannot deny about my activities in the 80s. <laughs> but that is one I can deny.
2: Okay. okay. Um, so uh, I'm curious for your take, Al, on the way in which, in the docuseries, the stories of the four kings were placed in a broader political and social context. Some people didn't like it. Uh, Kieran and I very much did like it and and maybe one's feelings depend on one's political leanings. I know we three are all of similar mind in that regard. So so how did you feel about it?
0: Um, If I'm going to be totally honest, I didn't think that that specific thing added as much as other elements of the story did. I do know that it, I just there the, 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 some parts of it I thought were kind of interesting, but I, I I think of their stories as while of course they're products of their of the time and things like you know. Uh, uh, there were social issues that helped forge them. There's no question about that. Um, I can't say that, I gotta be honest, I can't say that enhanced it for me uh, mm-hmm. dramatically. I thought some of the things they they threw in were interesting, but I, I I'm and, and the question you're asking is one that's being asked about this series. I think everybody enjoys the series and I'm mm-hmm. not saying that just because we're here talking about it, it's on Showtime. Most everybody is is digging the series that sees it that's the one thing that people either yay or nay on and they're 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 not sure which way to go
1: right yeah um so finally you know it feels as if one hesitates to say never but it feels as if the four kings is a boxing era and rivalry that will never quite be equaled and and i think the series does a great job of showing us part of the reasons for that there were four compelling personalities they could all really fight and they fought each other but as time goes on, what do you think about, do you think how, mu- how much of the love for these four is because of who they are and what they did? And how much do you think is a yearning for a different era in boxing before there were four sanctioning belts, before networks and promoters got in the way and stopped big fights happening?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, uh, it's an intermingling of uh, of those feelings. Uh, I, yeah, a, a couple of things about that. And it, the, number one there was kind of a repeat of that on a slightly lesser scale when Marco Antonio Barrera, Eric Morales, Juan Manuel Marquez, and, uh, uh, and Manny Pacquiao. I almost forgot Manny Pacquiao. Right. He did play a major role in that. Right. Uh, when they fought in the early 2000s amongst themselves, mm-hmm. uh, to me, that was a mini version of the four yep. kings. It just didn't have the cultural and giant, you know, and boxing was in a different place too than it was. And that's part of it too. Look, boxing, uh, we don't have people fighting each other as more now people don't fight as often. It's hard to get these rivalries over a long, you know, have because of uh, affiliations, both, both network and uh, promotional. So it is unlikely that we would see, this kind of rivalry and you, you have to have a, a perfect storm of four amazing fighters, you know, coming together. And, and by the way, some would say Wilfred Benitez deserved to right. be the fifth king. Mm-hmm. Um, he played a role in, a big role in this, but um, it's unlikely you're going to see that again. And I think you're right. Part of it is the yearning that people have for it. And they look back on it and say, wow, you know, this was, this was extraordinary. And of course, boxing at that time commanded the attention of the world in a way it doesn't now. So it would be harder. A per, well, perfect example is even the the look at the trilogy we're living through with Tyson Fury and, and Wilder. It's commanding a lot of attention, isn't it? And mm-hmm. it does command a lot of attention. It's just not going to be like, it's not quite like the Four Kings. So it you can, you can have those kind of rivalries that will uh, the world sporting world will pay attention to now, but we paid rapt attention mm. to the, the four Kings back then. Yeah.
1: Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your memories and reflections. Uh, it's always a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll get to speak with you again soon.
0: I always enjoy it and this is a fun topic uh, to revisit uh, and next time we'll uh, we'll discuss other matters
1: there you go great alright thanks a lot Al
0: that will do it for
1: this episode of the podcast and indeed for our month long look at the Kings it's been a real joy to have a chance to do a deep dive into the show thanks to Box to Box Films and Genius Media and of course Showtime Sports and most of all to our new BFF director Matt Whitecross <laughs> for putting together a fabulous series yeah Hope you've all enjoyed it as well. Thank you so very much for listening. Be safe, be kind and be well.